is to help us make our journey in and through the obstacles in good order, coming out at the end with all of our dreams and ambitions pretty much achieved. By the time you're about 45, you're over that. Actually, as I emphasized last Sunday, that's not the goal at all. If anybody here is under any illusion that that's what it is, and God in heaven is our big Santa Claus and he's ready to bring us gifts and just help us just really enjoy this life, get over that. God's project in our lives is at the end of the day to so work through the spirit, we call it the work of sanctification, of purification, whatever it takes, however long it takes, to bring us to the end of our trail more conformed to the moral image of his son. In short, what he's doing is shaping us and refining us so that we are becoming truly disciples of Jesus and we come out on the other end conformed and transformed in his moral likeness, whether in sickness or in health, in poverty or prosperity, in what passes for success, or what the world regards as failure. At the end of the day, the Spirit of God is working in your experience and my experience. We're going to see that. Simply produce a bright and shining Christian, one who is faithful in every aspect of his being. <clears throat> I'm repeating myself, but it deserves to be repeated. Why do What's God's purpose for my life? God's purpose for your life is to be a Christian. To be a Christian in every sense of the word. You don't have to search for it, pray for it. Lord, what do you want me to do? Please reveal it to me. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll be what you want me to be. Be. Be a Christian. That's the whole project. Here's a classic example of the original disciples. They were at that time somewhat clueless about the whole backstory, what I just talked about, as we often are in our own case. Their faith was having surprising trouble in springboarding from his mighty works like the one he had just performed the feeding of the 5,000 to the implications of those signs and wonders in the next crises of their lives. So Jesus draws a bead on that dullness in their faith as he also does in our cases. So we go to verse 15. Let's read. Jesus, therefore, perceiving, and I'm going to interpolate stuff in here that will clarify things. Perceiving that they, the multitude of more than 5,000 men alone, whom he had just miraculously fed from the five loaves and a couple of fish, he perceived that they were all wound up in political excitement, intending, by popular acclamation, to make Jesus, not the Romans, their proper king. It's just like... Some Christians, if I may insert here. Now, if you want to know, people don't get the wrong idea. 
I am conservative politically. Okay. But some Christians get carried away. And boy, they want to Christianize America. And they get caught up in some of this extreme stuff. It never was a Christian nation. And it's never going to be. And politicians are never going to fix it. Never going to fix it. Well, some of these, we call them Christian nationalists. The South is full of them. Well, some of these Jewish people who were kind of drawn to Jesus, they had that nationalistic fervor. And boy, with power like this, can he do a job on the Romans? So they were ready in a political fever to rise up and to just acclaim him their king. They didn't know who he was from a bunny rabbit. They didn't realize that he was a spiritual king. He would later, in the end, conquer the nations, but that was not now. So Jesus wanted to get some separation somehow from this fever that was running through this crowd. So he managed somehow, we're not told, to get himself separated to the mountain where he could be by himself alone. And he wanted to pray. Interesting. So he took his disciples down to the beach before that happened. He didn't go down to surf. He took them down to the beach, wanted to get them out of Dodge and get away from that toxic influence by saying, go, go. They were to go to Capernaum. Now, a little application of all of that. Here our Lord sets an example for us of resisting temptation, the temptation of pandering to his own ego. I mean, when you've been rejected and rejected and rejected and rejected, and all of a sudden, oh, boy, you start getting acclamation, clapping, This guy's got the right stuff. There's a temptation. Remember, he was human. There's a temptation to kind of enjoy that, to kind of pander to it. So there was a temptation to go off the reservation of the Father's plan and do things the devil's way. The Father's way was the way of suffering and humiliation by the way of the cross not the way of political agitation, flag-waving, and public affirmation. Another point I want to make here before we move on. Several. Sometimes in God's ways, it is very important as here to get away from certain influences, to get away from certain people and certain jobs, just as important to get away from some as it is to get into some. This was one of those. It's an example for us. The disciples, I'm sure, would very much have liked to hang around and not be chased by Jesus down to the beach to get into a boat. I mean, after all, they were they were enjoying his shine. They kind of liked that. Jesus knew it. He didn't want them infected by it. It would have taken them the wrong direction. They would much rather have hung around the scene of a great stir about Jesus and some of that shine reflecting on them than to be dispatched premature. You know how little kids are. We got to leave. And Jesus says, yes, you've got to leave. 
So to build on that point of application, I have found that anything, any direction that appeals to Jim Andrews' flesh, the Bible calls it the pride of life. No matter how I imagine I may rationalize it in pious terms. There was a guy in Colorado, I interrupt myself, who resigned his pulpit. This was years ago in the 70s. He resigned his pulpit to run for Congress. He rationalized it as Becky Pippert getting the salt out of the shaker. He was so wrong. Rationalizing it as the will of God, and that was exactly the wrong direction for that guy, which time later proved. Now, if I may confess a little, I've done it before. I've got a lot of things to confess to you. I'm not going to tell you all. I don't mind admitting to this congregation but that by nature, it's not by culture, not by family culture or anything. I broke from the womb a very ambitious West Virginia hillbilly. For whatever reason, I could never stand hick, and I can't stand it to this day. As a disciple, I personally would probably have been less useful if my dreams and ambitions had been realized. I tell people lots of times that I peaked in college. It's been downhill ever since. <laughs> Not quite true. <clears throat> Just to illustrate a little more, there was there was a, a dean's job that came open at the school where I was teaching. I was asked to be the academic dean. Well, I can look at resume on your resume. College academic dean. I could tell mom that I was now the academic dean at this college. That kind of flattered my ego. And then I discovered, fortunately, by the grace of God, I discovered that the content of that job, except for doing all the hiring of faculty and other people, I would hate 75% of it. So I didn't take it. Well, there went that. And then in college, I think I've told you this, I was, I was nominated for a Fulbright scholarship. I must say, no blow. I was totally qualified, maybe overqualified. I'd planned it. I'd worked on it for three years. And then for reasons that weren't quite fair, but probably true, <laughs> I, uh, I didn't get it. It's the way of the flesh. I just thought if I could have that on my resume, you know, the world's a limit. And then I got into a Ph.D. program, University of Colorado. I was so tired of guys going off, they're still doing, going off and getting these cheapy PhDs somewhere. They're not worth the paper they're printed on. I told Aussie, I'm going to get a real PhD. Way of the flesh. You see the pride in that. I'm going to get a real one. One that matters in classics. And I got into it. I did well. Except the Lord had a plan for me to come out here. And I had to interrupt it, so I got out with my master's instead of my Ph.D. 
That doesn't do a thing for the ego, but it's the way it was. But that's been my experience through life, whoever you are, wherever you are. If in the process of becoming a disciple, the Lord's leading you, there's something that appeals to your ego. It appeals to your flesh. It's probably not what the Lord wants. Probably not. I can't say that absolutely because I don't have the mind of God in that sense. Anyway, Jesus got them down to the Sea of Galilee where they were going to make for Capernaum. Now, the Sea of Galilee, longwise, is 13 miles. Wide, it's seven miles. So they were coming kind of along the top, heading from apparently Bethsaida to to Capernaum. And then when they got down there, they were used to storms. I've been out on the Sea of Galilee. I was out there once, and there was a storm. It was not funny. Waves were coming up over the boat, not into the boat. But I said, I'd just soon get out of here. Those guys were used to that. So this was kind of an epic storm, jammed up by the Spirit of God. So it was at night. You know, you don't like to get into these crises at night, do you? They were used to the night. They fished a lot at night, but not in this kind of weather. This was a providentially orchestrated storm. What I'm saying to you by analogy, some of you here right now are in providentially orchestrated storms. And some of you, if not now, are going to be, or you have been in the, you have been in the past. Matthew and Mark give us more details. Jesus, meanwhile, was not with the disciples. That disconcerted them, I'm sure. He was up in the mountain overlooking the sea and praying. He saw them. A parallel passage says he saw them struggling at the oars. Boy, you can't miss that. Sometimes it's a metaphor. These are historical events, but they're kind of like parables. They're kind of symbols of what goes on in your life and mine as disciples. Sometimes the Lord wants to get you away from something. Sometimes he wants to get you into something. He wanted them in this storm. He wanted them there. He planned it. It was not chaotic. It was not haphazard. It was not accidental. He wanted them in the storm. He was building them, shaping them, polishing them, as disciples, and that was some work. So finally, they'd gotten about halfway to their destination. Waves were slapping every which way in what we call a Jesus boat. Look it up. Go to Google, but not now. I've seen them. Some of you have seen them. They have a replica that they pulled up from those times in a museum there at Capernaum. And they're sizable boats. Some of us, you remember being in Mike and Lori? You remember being in a Jesus boat out on Sea of Galilee? It was not a rowboat. It was no ship either. But it was a pretty good-sized boat. could easily handle 12 disciples and the Lord Jesus easily. So as a big storm that was really making it difficult for them to make their passage to their destination. Big storm. So, Donnell, don't get mad. <laughs> Couldn't help but tease her. Uh, so even to these seasoned fishermen, this thing was frightening. The Lord 
by metaphor, sometimes put you out in a boat in the sea of life. And you're facing things that you haven't faced before. It's a little over your pay grade. And it was scary. And the Lord appeared not to be there. He happened to be in the mountain overseeing all this going on and he was praying for them. Praying for their faith and all that kind of thing. We don't know what all he's praying for. So there they were. What do they do next? Well, it's much like today that many people push and promote a false Jesus, that he had gotten them away from that influence. So what's going on here in this atmosphere is like the good shepherd. What's Jesus doing? Listen to me. What he's still doing in my life and in your life. He's the good shepherd. He's rounding up his disciples, first of all, who were enjoying all his clamor about Jesus, getting them away from that influence. We know that he didn't just suggest that they do it. He compelled them in Matthew 14, 22. That's the phrase. He said, get out of here. But Lord, we kind of like it here. I mean, they're praising you and doing it. Get out of here. Get in the boat and get going. Sometimes in our lives, the Lord is telling us, get in the boat and get going. We don't know why. Out of here. Away from those influence. I don't want you infected by that. Well, no sooner had they taken to sea than a great storm, as I've mentioned, stirred up on the sea, not one of a regular kind. A strong wind was blowing. Now, strong meant something more to them than to us because, as I say, I've been out there. And I say, oh, I can see what happened. Is one strong enough for them to fear for their safety? Sometimes you and I, in God's providence in our lives, we're out in some territory that makes us feel for our safety, our economic safety, our health safety, our social safety. Something like that, our emotional safety. And this is getting scary and it's getting a little wild. Some of you will probably be in, out on the sea at Christmas time where there's so many family issues that pop up. What am I going to do with this? But the point I'm making is it was providentially orchestrated as the ones that come at us. This storm, don't get the wrong idea, it was very historical. Not historical, but historic. Historical. It stands as a divinely designed symbol that in God's providence, things, storms, metaphorically speaking, assail us. And they heighten our anxieties as we plod our way in the corridors of life down here on earth. I'm sure most of you in this room, you've had, you've had maybe you're still having. It's not uncommon. You're not telling everybody about it. But you're ripped emotionally. You're crying. You cried home. You maybe cried on your bed. You don't go out and tell everybody about it. What am I going to do? How am I going to navigate this storm? 
They were wondering, I'm sure. Things heighten our anxieties. Maybe we don't cry, but we're just very uneasy. Like waves, fears rise up and frighten the heck out of us. Well, verse 19, when therefore the disciples had rowed three or four miles, <laughs> sweaty, <laughs> they were against the waves. This was tough going. So when they had rowed three or four miles, they knew how to row. They were good at it. They beheld what? Look, look, look. What the devil? Look. Somebody's walking out there, the waves. Somebody's walking on those waves. It was an apparition. They did what you and I would do. They said, it's a ghost. You say, I've never seen a ghost. I have. One night I was in California speaking at a retreat. It was a college retreat. And uh, we had had a great service that evening. I was really on a high. I was lying in bed. It's the middle of the night. But because I had so much adrenaline going, I kind of woke up. I was looking at the ceiling. And as I looked at the ceiling, I said, what is that? What is that? And I saw a bust of what I would regard as a Moses-like figure, long beard. It took more and more definitive shape as I watched it. I got scared. I said, Lord, is this you? Is this demonic? Or what's the meaning of it? So I hopped out of bed, went into the restroom to try to shake my consciousness. And I didn't want to sit there and dwell on that. So in a few minutes, I came back, got in bed. I don't remember for sure, but I think the same thing repeated itself. I got through the night, got up the next morning, went up the hill where the cafeteria was. And there were a bunch of kids up there, college kids. And they were talking about all the things that had happened that night that seemed to be of a demonic character. Oh, oh, I understand. Well, they just, they just thought, the disciples, that it had to be an apparition. They were raw bone men. They weren't a bunch of sissies. <laughs> Everything, everything's spooky. You'd have thought it was spooky, too, if you saw somebody walking on the water. They didn't immediately recognize it as Jesus. They were understandably spooked. I'm just saying that such phenomena, however you explain them, they do occur. To them, the ghost explanation was the best at the moment. What the Spirit of God What's to happen? You know, why did Jesus come walking on the water? He could have gone around the north side of the lake. Hey, I'm over here, guys. He could have done all of that, though the wind and the waves may have drowned his voice. He could have made himself heard. So what's he trying to tell us through their experience? He wanted them to see they had already seen, but their faith was dull. 
as ours is sometimes. He wanted them to see the unlimited power of Jesus to do the impossible whenever he pleases. But to understand this, not only is nothing impossible with God, it doesn't mean he's going to go charging into your life every time you have a, a little scare, but he wants you to understand what he can do. I'm never sure of what he will do unless he's promised it. But I need to know and you need to know what he can do. And so on top of the feeding of the 5,000, he was giving them an illustration of what he can do. He can come to our aid in ways totally unexpected. It's not uncommon if the Lord intervenes to help us in our own crisis and to do so in ways that seem at first more threatening than protective. Our first reaction may be fear, and that was theirs. They didn't know this was Jesus. You see a lot of this in the Bible. You see a lot of it in our own experience. I remember my daughter Christy and her sister Julie. They were in great fear when the Lord came to us in the night, as it were, and called us to leave Denver and move to Portland. They had been to Portland once. They hated it. And now all of a sudden we were going to Portland. They loved, can I say that nine times? Loved Denver. They loved their church. Everything about the prospect of coming up here was frightening. They might use another adjective. But sometimes the Lord takes us into frightening territory. It's true in the Bible. You see it again and again. God called Abraham to leave Haran in Mesopotamia to go to this wild territory and wild tribes known as Canaan. He called Moses out of his safety zone in Midian. He had had to flee Egypt to get away from Pharaoh who wanted to kill him. And God called him to go back to Egypt where to say he was uncomfortable is to understate it. God called Gideon to take on the ravaging Mennonite horde, and they were huge. They looked like grasshoppers with only 300 select men. Gideon was very spooked about all of that. But then Jesus said to them, It is I. Hey, it's I, Jesus. Don't be afraid. You see what I think I need to grow into, and I have to a large extent, and many of you have. You need to grow into this thing where stuff seems to be going off the grid, seems to be going wrong. You need to realize, no, you're not seeing Jesus literally walking on the waves, but in a metaphor, to realize that in his providence, he has put you out there on the turbulent sea of life. And things happen. And to you, they're not good, they're scary. Been there, done that, probably will be again. And he says to you, I'm repeating what he said, calm down, like a parent would say, calm down, chill out. It's me, not a ghost. It is I. I'm working in your life 
to bring you into a closer, tighter, more refined relationship with me. Don't be afraid. All I need to know is that if it's Jesus doing this, I don't need to be afraid. He means this for our good, not for our harm. Some things that he does may hurt, but he means them for our good. He's not wrong about that. And it'll, be, it'll go that way. They were therefore willing to receive him into the boat. It was Jesus that calmed their fears, should calm mine. And immediately they were to land where they were going. Why would this sudden arrival, however it was, be noted? Why did it even have to be noted? Why not move on? Well, I'll tell you why. When the lesson is over, class is dismissed. When the Lord does what he wants to do in a given case, the bell rings and you're immediately where you were going. Not a minute sooner, not a minute later. On to the next one. There's a wonderful efficiency about the works of the Lord. James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 tells us this, so be patient. Let's read this. Consider pure joy, familiar to most of you, my brothers and sisters. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, you're out on the sea in a storm. Because you know, you should know, I'm telling you if you haven't gotten it, that the testing of your faith, that's what they were going through, produces perseverance. The more we go through it, the more able we are to face it and endure it with poise and pride. But let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, finished as disciples, not lacking anything. That's where we want to be. Once one man asked another, well, brother, how are you getting along? The other looked up with a gloomy face, I think it was Ironside, and said, well, I'm doing pretty well under the circumstances. The other said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that you're under the circumstances. Christ delights to live us above all the circumstances. This week, just a minute, I've got to read you this. Here we go. Sue Barong, Sue, would you raise your hand back there? Put on your halo so we can see it. Stick your hand up, Sue. All right, she's right back there. Paul is right there. There's Sue. She really loves. She really loves this. But I think it was after last week the message. She has a little Bible back there, just a little Bible. And I had asked her before the service, how things were going. I'll fill in the background in just a minute. Had she heard anything? And she filled in a little bit, and then she pulled out a little paper. It used to be in our bulletins. So let me give you the back story. Some of you have heard it. Others of you have not. It's 13 years ago. Am I right, Sue? 13 years ago, her mother and her sister were murdered down in southern Oregon. 
her uh, sister immediately, somebody burst in the door, shot her sister point blank, and then moved on to her mother and shot her mother. She didn't die immediately. She lived for a while. Well, you can imagine what a storm on the sea that was. I'm talking about making disciples. That's horrifying. And so I was inquiring, is there any late-breaking news about catching those guys? As a matter of fact, they haven't caught them, but they do have some good leads as to who did it. It's one of those things where they can't make an arrest right now. Anyway, after that trauma, after the boat landed, Sue came back to church. It wasn't too long. And as she was sitting in one of these services one Sunday morning, she wrote what I'm going to read. This is just a copy she made me so I could read it. And it's an illustration of how storms on the seas are used by the Spirit of God to make and refine them. I hope I don't choke up in reading this, but I am so proud of so many of you people, and I'm so proud of Sue. She didn't want me to say that. She did pay me. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But I'm, she's so quiet and sits here week after week. This was in November, about this time of year, 2009. Thank you, Lord, for Lake Bible Church. For the people there, she wrote this during a service, for the people there that love and pray for our family. Psalm 10, 8. Psalm 10, 8 describes exactly Sorry, Sue, I can't read that. No. And Psalm 10.15 is my prayer for justice. Oh, Tom 10.8 said, He lies in wait near the villages from, from ambush. He slays the innocent. 10.15 a prayer. Break the arm of the wicked and evil man. Call him to account for his wickedness that would not be found out otherwise. Now listen to what she says. This is grace. Spelled with a capital R, a capital G, a capital R, a capital A, capital C. When the Lord puts you out on the storms of life, and you just feel threatened. It's this kind of thing. And you talk about a storm. That was a storm. God re rejoiced when my sister went home. Will I dance for you, Jesus, or will I stand in all of you? I think my sister is dancing for Jesus. She loved him with all of her heart. Her mother was still hanging on at this time. On the night this happened, on a large side of the southern Oregon, where the thought of God must be feeling, heartbroken, not for my sister, she's talking about her own heart, but because she is with him, 
heartbroken not for us because he knew he would send comfort but for the person or people who did this <coughs> who did this he created the one or ones who did this and it broke his heart gods that one of my creations chose to do such an awful thing God loves her and he hates what he has done. I pray for his soul or her or what they have done. I pray that they may be saved. At the same time, for earthly justice. Thank you, everyone at Lake, for the love and support you have given us. One of my children, creations, failed again. <clears throat> Nothing but hypocrites in those churches. That's no hypocrite. Sat there in one of our services and wrote that affecting note to herself. That's the grace of God. I don't know that I have that level of grace if I were facing, if that kind of thing had happened to me. I don't know. But I know that's where God's trying to move me, where he's trying to move you, not necessarily through that, but through things like that. You're out on the storm of the sea. And what you see is an apparition. It's not Jesus. But when he identifies himself, whoa, take it easy, chill out. I'm in this. Don't be afraid. Then we become driven by faith and not by fear. That's what, as a pastor, I'm always trying to get across to myself and trying to get across to you what God's project is in our lives. He wants me to be conformed to the moral image of the Lord Jesus Christ, to live by faith, to walk in love and to walk by grace. If anybody is here, you don't know Christ, I want to tell you that same Jesus stands waiting for you. You are a sinner and you need to be saved. There's nobody here who's not a sinner. There's nobody here who doesn't need to be saved. Nobody here who doesn't need a Savior. Don't think for one minute that you will pass muster before a holy God without Him. I am the way, the truth, and the life, He says. I invite you to receive Him as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus, whom you sent in the world to be our Redeemer, to clear us of all of our sins by washing away our guilt by the blood of the cross. We pray that if there's anyone here listening online who does not know Jesus, the Spirit of God would break through all that hardness, all that deafness, all of that stuff, and confront them with their need of the Savior and draw them 
by his saving grace into his loving arms. Now, Lord, we pray that we here would go forth, maybe on the sea in a storm, but that we would recognize that it is you. We don't need to be afraid. We ask it all in his great name. For your glory. Amen. Thank you.